the description of the vineyard had me captivated. But when I arrived, I was disappointed. As I walked through the vineyard, I saw dead vines strewn all about. The dead wood crackled under my feet, lifeless, useless. The description of the vineyard had been this, this glorious vine full of succulent fruit. But as I wandered and I got near to the center, I began to see signs of life. Spreading around me, I noticed on the ground that some of the vines were actually alive. And as I drew closer to the center, I saw hanging from these branches beautiful, succulent grapes. By the time I got to the center of the vineyard, the vine that I saw there was so glorious, so captivating, so out of this world that it took my breath away. Oh, it was alive. It was living. And as I looked back over my journey, I realized that every sign of life that I had seen was all the same vine, stretched out and spreading. And as, as I watched, it took over the vineyard. It spread its vines out, left, right, forward. It was an unstoppable force. And I knew soon it would take over the vineyard. It would spread its life to the furthest reaches of that orchard. Jesus has promised to build his church. And he says the gates of hell can't stand against it. What Jesus is doing, man can not stop. What I want to do today is I want to convince you that the most powerful message in the world is the message of the gospel and that we have a responsibility and a privilege to herald that gospel message to the world. Now, the reason that I've chosen to focus on this message on sanctity of life is because it's central to winning this battle for the sanctity of life. What I found in studying history is that the church first lost the war for the gospel before they lost the war for life. I'm fascinated with the character of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I've been listening to Eric McTaxis's biography of him. And something that stood out to me as I've listened to that biography is how the church lost the fight for the gospel. That they began to live out this empty faith. They stopped acting on the message that they had heard. They stopped believing in its power far before the Nazis were able to convince the Germans that a Jew was subhuman. You see, when the church failed to do its task, when it failed to be salt and light, the people in the world grew calloused to the truth. And once your conscience gets seared with a hot iron, it's be easy for you to believe that there's a person who's subhuman. When you look at the atrocities that have commit, been committed over the face of our earth, they've always come because of this lie. And the reason that people buy into that lie is because their consciences become hardened. But we have the message that will bring their conscience to life. That will allow them to gain a sensitivity to the truth, to what true righteousness is that will change our world. The message I have for you today is simple. It's that mercy triumphs. 
We serve a God who is abounding in steadfast love. His description of himself is his hased, his mercy, his unending mercy that is new every morning. And if we are going to change the world, it's going to be through that message, through the message of a merciful God who has made a path to forgiveness. Now, what does that have to do with abortion? Everything. You see, that's primary. That's first. That's foremost. We have to share the message of the gospel before we can convince anybody to change anything. The world has to come to life, to new life, before they'll accept the reality that the life inside of them is a gift. And so the first thing that we really need to do is we need to understand sin and mercy. And so what I want to do is I want to start out in James and then we'll jump over into John 8. But I want to begin in James chapter 2. In James 2.10, it says, Forever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. So first thing I want to share with you today is this, is that there is no hierarchy of sin. Do you get that? Do you understand that? So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, oh no, they're talking about abortion. I don't want to hear about that. Maybe there's a tragedy in your past. Maybe there's a sin in your past and it convicts you. There's no hierarchy of sin. It's a level playing field. Every failure is a failure. What James tells us, he says, whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. That's every single one of us here today is guilty of breaking it all. Because we've all failed. We've all stumbled. We've all fallen short. And then he goes to the specific example of adultery and murder. You know, what we love to do in our sort of self-righteousness, we like to create a hierarchy of sin where everything that everybody else does is terrible, but what I do is not really that bad. We like to paint ourselves in this picture where, yeah, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm not like him over there. And, and we, we sound just like the Pharisee when we should be the publican beating our chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the prayer that is heard. That's the prayer that brought you to new life. Don't forget what brought you here. The passage goes on in verse 12. He says, Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to ask the question today, what does that mean? What does it mean that, that mercy triumphs over judgment? And I think the answer can be found in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we have the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Let's go ahead and turn there. John 8, we're going to start in verse 3. 
says this, Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. There's a temptation in churches today to make Sanctity of Life Sunday look just like this. Think about it for a second. What do you do? You point out this, this terrible sin. We don't do it, but there sure are people in the world who do it. Let's put them in the center. Let's mock them. Why do we do that? So we can feel better about ourselves. Because at least we don't. Whose shoes are you wearing? Teacher, they said to him, this woman is caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Do you hear that? They're asking this question to do what? To trap Jesus. Why, why do they think that this is going to trap Jesus? It's because they have, have observed in him the steadfast love of God. It's because they've recognized the perfect attributes of God the Father in Jesus Christ. And they realize he's merciful. You see, the thing that offends the Pharisees about Jesus is the same thing that offended Jonah about God. You remember? He knew if I share with them, they're going to repent. I don't want them to repent. The Pharisees believed that mercy is a trap. And they're going to try to use mercy to entrap Jesus. No, mercy triumphs. Verse 7, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with a woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. What I see in John 8, in the story of the woman caught in the act, is I see that mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you see what Jesus is exuding here? Do you see what he's manifesting, how he is responding to this sin that's been brought before him? He responds with mercy and he wins with mercy. What I want to show you is I want to show you three ways in this passage that mercy triumphs over judgment. So the first way that I see mercy triumphing over judgment is when we realize we are guilty. And I see it in every character in the story except Jesus. Everybody knows they're guilty. Think about it. What does Jesus say? He says, he who is without sin, he can cast the first stone. And what do they do? Every single one of them drops their stone. Every single one. Why? Because all have sinned. Nobody can stand there and say, well, I have a right to throw the stone because I've never sinned. Every single one of them. With those words, Jesus reveals their own heart to them. 
Mercy triumphs when we realize we are guilty. Do, do you remember the very first time in your life that you understood you were a sinner? Do, do you remember the first time in your life where you realized what you really deserved for that? Do you remember that moment where it just hit you? And maybe it was in the midst of, of another failure that you'd promised you'd never do again and you realized I am just as despicable as anybody else on the face of this earth. Something you'd said, something that you had done, something you'd looked at, where you realized you were confronted with yourself. You realized you are a sinner. And I know that in that moment, for me, when I experience that, I, I begin to lose hope. And the only thing that can save me in those moments of abject guilt is mercy. It's that His mercy is more than my sin. And so what I want to do is I want to remind you of who you were, not because I want to rub your face in your sin, but because I want you to remember what a great salvation we have. So let's turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the Spirit now working in the disobedient. Do you remember who you were? You were dead. That's who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were a slave of sin. You were unable to respond to the gospel. You were hopeless in the midst of a dying world. You were hell-bound with no recourse. That's who you were. He goes on in verse 3, he says this, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others also. Do, do you hear this? We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. There's not a single one of us here who this is not describing. Every single one of us, we all lived in our fleshly desires. We've all spent time in this body living not for Jesus, but for ourselves, Serving only our appetites. Enslaving ourselves to our bellies. That's who we were. There isn't a person standing here who has not failed. And what I want you to understand is if you fail in one point, you're guilty of all. There's no hierarchy of sin. There, there's certain sins in our culture that we can tend to exalt. And I want to be careful here. Because every sin is terrible, but every sin is forgivable. And why we as, an, as a church will speak out against homosexuality or will speak out against abortion, the reason we speak out against those is because those are specific sins that our world has decided to call good. Our world has decided to say, that's not a sin. We have to speak out against that. But we need to speak out against that just like we speak out against any other sin that the world decides to call good. 
We need to stand against the tide. And so that's why we speak against these sins, but that doesn't mean that there's a hierarchy. It doesn't mean that you're a worse sinner if you struggle with those sins, if you've committed those sins. It doesn't make you a worse sinner. You're just as in need of a Savior as anyone else. And I think that as, as a, a culture, as a church culture in America, we do not do a good job of communicating this. And, and I base that on statistics. So what breaks my heart is when I look at the statistics of girls getting abortions and how many of them identify themselves as evangelical Christians. Because it's more. Because it's more than girls who are not. And when they fill out the surveys and they explain why, it's because of the shame of going to their church and admitting they failed. Because somehow, our church culture has so elevated that sin as the ultimate despicable action that those who have done that sin think there could never be forgiveness for them. Mercy triumphs when we all see that we're guilty. We have a responsibility to communicate to the people in the church, I think to our children first, that every sin is sin. Every sin is terrible and every sin is forgivable. We need to have such open lines of communication with our children that they're willing to share with us when they've struggled. They need to know that we will not look at them with horror if they admit they've fallen short because they know we've fallen short. We need to be transparent and open about our own struggles so that our children are willing to come to us when they are in need. The church in America needs to become a place that sinners run to to find a message of hope, of forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever read the book What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. It's, a, it's an excellent book. But he talks in there about counseling a prostitute. And as he hears her story, she's just this normal suburban girl who lost her way. And, and as she told her story, he asked her this. He said, anywhere along the way, did you ever think of going to the church to ask for help? And she looked at him puzzled, confused, and said, that's the last place I would ever go. They would judge me. They would throw me out. They wouldn't accept me. You see, this is the message that we're up against in our world today. The world believes that you go to church if you want to get judged. You go to church because you know that judgment is imminent and you want to get forgiven. But we need to start communicating that message effectively in our homes, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, with our children. It's so important for them to realize that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's what I see in this story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. There is no sin so terrible that it's not forgivable. We're all guilty. And the next place that I see mercy triumphing over judgment is that when we recognize we are not condemned. Mercy triumphs over judgment when we recognize we are not condemned. That's my favorite part of the story. When Jesus turns to the woman 
And they have this conversation. Let me read it to you. John 8, 10, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and from now on do not sin anymore. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself in reading this passage why Jesus says, neither do I condemn you? If you're asked why, why does Jesus say that? Because he's the only one who could. Because he's the only one who had the right to pick up a stone and throw it at her. Jesus has, could have condemned her right there. He could have taken her life away. Everything was on his side. Remember what he said, he who is without sin. And the sinless one stands there. Everybody with sin walks away, but the sinless one looks at her. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Mercy triumphs over judgment when we realize we are not condemned. This is the message that Paul shares with us in Romans 8, 1. He says, therefore, there is now no, condemnations for, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is one of those verses you need to memorize and have with you all the time. Because the accuser of the brethren is always waging his war. And you need to remember there is therefore now no condemnation and you need to see the why. Look at the passage. What's the why? Why is there no condemnation? There's a reason there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Do you see that? What does that mean? That means that the life that you now have is hidden with God in Christ. You are in Christ. For you to be condemned, Jesus would have to be. Do you understand that? That's how secure your salvation is because it's not based on your righteousness. It's based on His so important for you to understand your security. Your security in Christ is based on your union to him. And that's a union that cannot be broken. The life that you're living, it's not you. It's Christ living in you. That's who you are. You are crucified. The reason you're, there is no condemnation for you today is because you're in Christ. And I love what he says. I'm going to just sort of jump to the end of Romans 8. In verse 33, he says, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can condemn us? Jesus Christ has died. And so when the enemy tries to bring up an accusation. There's sin. There's failure. The reason he can't accuse us is not because we're perfect. It's because Jesus died. That's why there's no condemnation. Because Jesus died in my place. But he didn't stay dead. But even more than that, he has been raised and he has sat down at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. 
Jesus is your advocate. There's no condemnation. Just like he advocated for that woman in John chapter 8, he's advocating for you now. We have fallen short. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What I see in John chapter 8 is that mercy triumphs. And if we're going to change our culture, which needs to change, it's going to be with this message. That mercy triumphs over judgment. It happens when we realize we're guilty. It happens when we recognize that despite our guilt, we're not condemned. But the story doesn't end there. Because Jesus gives directions. He tells the woman one more thing. Mercy triumphs over judgment when we are transformed. You see, when you receive mercy, it changes you. You cannot receive mercy without being changed by mercy. There's people in the world who have heard about mercy, but they haven't received it. What do I mean? I mean, think about the story of the two debtors that Jesus told. You remember that parable? It tells the story of a man who owes a great debt that he could never repay. When his master threatens to throw him in prison, he begs and he pleads and he's set free. His debt is canceled. And he goes out and he finds a fellow servant who owes a meager portion. And he has him thrown in prison. Do you remember what the master says to him when he calls him before him? He said, I showed you mercy. You should have shown mercy to your fellow servant. And he throws him in prison. Why? Because the man did not receive the mercy. Mercy received transforms. You see, that woman on that day, she's transformed by the message that Jesus has proclaimed to her. And so when Jesus says to her in John 8, 11b, go and from now on do not sin anymore, you need to understand this, that he's then going to make that possible by dying on a cross, raising to new life, and sending his Holy Spirit into the lives of believers to aid them in their battle against sin. This is not a victory that they could win on their own. Nobody can do that apart from supernatural aid. And that supernatural aid is what Jesus sends and it's what the gospel promises. A minute ago, I read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I want to jump back to that passage because what he says in verse 4 is amazing. In verses 1 through 3, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked in your fleshly desires. Do you remember that? But then in verse 4, he says this, But God. Do you see that? Whenever you find a but God in, pass- in a passage in Scripture, stop and meditate on it because the tides are going to turn, the tables are going to be flipped. Because Following but God, we always find God's cosmic rescue plan. We find his abundant mercies that are new every morning. But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You see, the story of mercy begins with those words, but God. You were dead. There was a payment to pay that you could not pay. 
but God. And what did he do? He made you alive. You know, we say that we want the world to change. We say that we want the cultural values that surround us to change. We say that we want our leaders to change. Politics does not change the world. The gospel does. And if you believe that, you'll go home today and you'll share the most powerful message in the world with your neighbor. And if you wonder who your neighbor is, it's the person who lives like next to you. Or you'll call up a family member on the phone that you've never shared the gospel with or a friend that you care about. And you tell them, I have to tell you the greatest message in my life that I've ever heard. I need to tell you today because I love you too much to not tell you. If we really want the world to change, then we would be a people who are weekly proclaiming the gospel, who are getting out and sharing a message that will change the world. Because what people need is salvation. And how are they going to believe unless somebody tells them? You see, they need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They need to come alive in Christ Jesus. That can't happen apart from faith in God. You see, what we're asking a young woman to do when we're asking her to to keep that baby, we're asking her to fight against a slave master that owns her. Do you understand that? It makes sense when slaves of sin sin. We need to set them free before we ask them to live righteously. Do you get that? And the message that sets them free is the message of the gospel. When we ask people to choose life, we're asking them to conquer the world. Do you want to know what conquers the world? Our faith. Listen to John in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Because everyone who's been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We want to see victory. We want to see the people in our culture choosing righteousness instead of sin. But that can't happen while they're slaves of sin. They will obey that taskmaster. Whatever despicable act he tells them to do, they will obey because he owns them. They need to be rescued. But here's the good news. We're part of a church that storms the gates of hell. We're part of a church that Jesus is building and he says the gates of hell can't even stand against it. That's what you're a part of. What you are a part of is growing at a rate that will overtake the world, that will reach every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what you're a part of. And so my challenge to you today is simple. It's this, it's preach the gospel. Start with yourself. I think one of the reasons that sometimes we don't preach the gospel effectively is we're not preaching it to ourselves. And when you preach it 
to yourself first and then you go to your neighbor instead of preaching to them down the hill, you're preaching to them across the hedge. What do I mean? I mean, so many people in the world, they feel like Christians are just talking down to them, but we're not. We're on the same level because there's not a hierarchy of sin. There's not one sin that's worse and one sin that's not as bad. That's not how it works. And so we preach to them eye to eye. I am standing on the same ground you are on. I need a Savior just as much as you do today. I'm no better than you. If you've sinned in one place, you're guilty of all. And so we preach across the hedge instead of down the hill. I believe that God has given us a gift this last year. I believe that the world recognizes in a very real way, their need for a community. God designed us for fellowship. He designed us to sit face to face, to interact with other humans. And in a very real way, the entire world right now recognizes their desperate need for connection. I'm challenging you to preach the gospel, and I believe the front lines of the gospel in 2021 is through hospitality. I think if we're willing to have our neighbors into our home, to invite them over for a barbecue, to simply be there when they're having a hard time, to reach out with love to them, they'll recognize when there's a crisis, I can go, I can go to his house. When there's hardship, I can call him. We'll have opportunities to share the gospel if we will simply show that Christian love transcends every boundary that we don't see ourselves as superior to anyone else, that we're all equal before Jesus Christ. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Preach the gospel. Preach it to yourself first. Preach it across the hedge, not down the hill. And then lastly, preach it in season and out of season. And what I believe that Paul is saying when he tells Timothy to preach in season and out of season is there are certain times of drought, where the crops just don't yield like they do at other times. There's times where there's just not as much fruit. Preach the gospel. And then there's times where it just comes in in a flood, where there's so much, and your barns are so full. Preach the gospel. And what happens, I think, sometimes is those times of, of famine and drought and hardship and turmoil where we're preaching and we're sharing and nothing's changing is we begin to lose hope and we stop to share the message that will change the world. Jesus told us, go into all the world, preach the gospel. This is the message that will change the world. It's not politics. It's not the culture choosing righteousness when they're slaves of sin. It's the gospel. And so my challenge to you today is really simple. And you already know what it is. It's just to make a commitment to preaching the gospel this week. To finding somebody to share the gospel with. It doesn't need to be complicated. All you do is you tell them, I was a sinner. And Jesus loves me. And he died for me. And I asked him to forgive me, and he did. It doesn't need to be complicated. It doesn't need to be prestigious. Just share the gospel. If you, if you want to learn more about sharing the gospel, we have an evangelism team. 
There's um, invitations you guys can pick up on your way out to invite people to our park church in the afternoons. Grab some of those. Share them with your neighbors. Invite people to come and get the one thing that they need. Preach the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the awesome privilege that you have given us to be heralds of the kingdom, to be bearers of the good news, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, help us to share this message with our hearts filled with hope. Help us, Lord, to not share the gospel as those who don't believe in its power. Help us, Lord, to so desire change in our culture, in our world, that we're willing to take up our responsibility to walk across the street and tell our neighbor that Jesus loves them and he died to save them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.